what did we just ask for? Those are the words, king of heaven, come down. King of heaven, come now. But what did we just ask for? That's what we're going to be looking at here in just a moment. Let me take a moment to pray, and then we'll open up the word of God. Good Father, I want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you for uh, the church gathered here. I want to thank you for the opportunity to worship and to praise and to open up your word and to literally hear the words of your son spoken to us for now and for all time. Father God, I'm grateful that we can hear it in our own language. Um, and Father, this morning too, it was mentioned earlier that there are a lot of empty seats here this morning, so I just want to take a moment to, to pray for those who are on missions trips or on trips in general. Father God, just the members of our body, who are your body, who aren't here with us here this morning, we pray your hand of blessing, protection, empowerment, peace, strength, and love upon them. And Father God, now may the words that I share this morning be more about your heart than mine, more your words than mine. And may we who listen, including myself, uh, just be able to hear you speak to our hearts. And may it change us as we go forward. In Jesus' name, amen. So my wife came across uh, an interesting history book or curriculum some years ago, you may know that we homeschool our kids, and this book presented a fascinating idea. The idea was that you could look at any culture, in any place, in any given time, and if you understood how that culture answered three big questions you would see it play out in their music, in their art, in their literature, in their philosophy, in their theology, in their economics, in their laws, in their culture, the way everyday people lived. You could see just by answering three big questions. Conversely, you could go the back, you could take it backwards also. If you studied their culture, their history, their literature, their economics, etc., you could understand how they viewed these three big questions. And so to illustrate three big questions, let's take a look at one particular time period in history, the Dark Ages of England. Three big questions. Question number one, what is the nature of God? Interestingly enough, it doesn't matter whether it's a Christian culture or not, or a Muslim culture or a secular culture or whatever in the world we're living in today. This question fundamentally changes how that culture works. And we could see this in the dark ages of England. Because if you look at the artwork and you look at the music and the literature and the philosophy, you understand that to the people in England during that time, God was this fearsome, he had authority, but unknowable, impersonal, far-off, distant God somewhere. You see it in the artwork with this magnificent, glorious God and all these little underlings beneath him. That gets us to the second question. What is, therefore, the nature of mankind? And in Dark Ages of England, 
You see them depicted again in the artwork and the, the philosophy as the, the peasants of God's kingdom. They were the vassals. They were the slaves to do his bidding. He owned them. And the third big question, what's the relationship between the two? And of course, that second one gave us a sense of what the answer was. The relationship between the two in the Dark Ages of England, there almost was none between the average person and this far-off distant God. But there was this intermediary, the church. And the Dark Ages of England, what you saw was the peasants, the everyday people, basically living as though God was off somewhere else far away, and he was scary, but he was out there. So you saw a lot of hedonism. But when the church came around, there was a tremendous amount of respect. They had power. They had authority. You could see it in their laws. You could see it in their economics and their culture. And consequently, what you had was a very dark people and a very authoritative church, which led to a lot of corruption in the church. And therefore... You had the Dark Ages, a corrupt church and a people who had knew nothing of God. Do you see how this concept of the three big questions, how you might understand who God is, what the nature of man is, and how they're related, might impact more than just art? What you believe about those three big questions impacts how you live every day. If I ask you the question, who are you? That's going to impact how you live, the decisions you make. It's going to impact the music you might make, or the art you might draw, or the people you might vote for in a democratic society. If I ask you, what is the nature of the relationship between you and God, that's going to impact every little decision of your life. Let's take a look at these three big questions now in a different time period. Modern U.S. pop culture. Now, I had to define this one very carefully because we live in a very divided country. I'm not talking about the culture necessarily of you and your circle of friends or a church culture. I'm talking popular culture. What we see depicted in music and television and our politicians and our spokespeople on the news and when we talk about philosophy, we're talking about modern-day higher education. What are the ideas being put forward in these different arenas? When you listen to an Ariane Grande song, I messed up her name, but you know who it is. Um, when you listen to one of her songs, what is she teaching? What do we understand? I picked on her in particular because she has this song, God is a Woman. Okay, so what is the nature of God? In modern U.S. pop culture, that's actually pretty easy. It is whatever you want him to be, or her to be, or it to be, whatever you want. We live in a very relativistic time in pop culture. So what is the nature of mankind? Answer today is whatever you identify as. You can be whatever you want to be. That's not just a Disney slogan. Pop culture, you see the philosophy and the entertainment and the arts push these ideas. What is the relationship now in this relativistic culture between these two, mankind and God? Basically, your relationship with God can be whatever you want it to be so long as you don't tell me that mine is not what I want mine to be. 
So go ahead and worship however you want on Sunday morning. Just don't bring that junk into the public square. Do whatever you want. What works for you is good for you, but don't tell me what I can't do. Modern day pop culture. Now let's go to one more culture, but leave the slides as they are. One more culture. Roughly 2,000 years ago. In Israel. There came a man. And this man had a really interesting message. His message was this. Addressing these three questions. His message was this. No one has ever seen God and lived to tell about it except for me. Meaning him, not me. Why? Because he said, I am the son of God. I know him perfectly. And I will tell you what is the nature of God. And I will tell you what is the nature of mankind? And I will tell you what is the relationship between the two. And I am the way. And I am the life. And no one gets to God except through me. Now you have to admit, however, that that is a pretty bold claim. Imagine if someone came to you today in this uh, modern-day U.S. pop culture and said to you, you don't know who God is, but I do, because I am the Son of God, and I will tell you. With all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What would you say of such a character? What would modern U.S. pop culture say of such a character? <laughs> well, you see, as soon as he claims that he has all authority to determine, it's not whatever anymore. You just violated cardinal rule number three of the U.S. pop culture. But take that claim across any culture, any time period. I'm the son of God. I alone have seen God and lived to tell the tale. And I will tell you with all authority just exactly who God is. Just logically speaking, what would you say of such a person? There really are about three different ways to think about such a person. One is, <laughs> you're lying. Yeah, oh, you're son of God. <laughs> Another is, you're a loony. But if we're really being, if we're really being logical about it for a minute, there is a third possibility. Anybody who claims to come from God and have all authority and know who God is perfectly and be the very son of the living God himself, is either lying, loony, or there's a slight possibility he's telling the truth. And that would make him Lord. And then you probably ought to listen to what he has to say. And 2,000 years ago, there was this man who said these things, and there was a group of people 12 in particular, but the number grew and expanded, called his disciples, who believed that he was telling the truth. And they actually went to him one day, and that's recorded in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. 
This man, Jesus, was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. In other words, teach us how to talk to God. He was sort of asking the third question, what's the nature of the relationship between God and man? Help me figure out how to relate to God, to talk to God. Teach us to pray, just as this guy John taught his disciples. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, When you pray, say, Father. Okay, let's just stop right there. Remember the three big questions. What's the first big question? Who is God? This is a culture that already had beliefs about God. Ancient Israel, about 2,000 years ago, they believed that God was holy almighty. So holy was his name, they wouldn't even dare to speak it for fear that they might take it in vain and violate one of his commandments. And this Jesus comes along and says, I know God, call him Father. Disciples, minds, Blown. Father. And not even just any word like the one who sired me, Father. This is a, a term more dear to that, like dad. That invites a whole new level of relationship with God. Life-changing relationship with God. And then Jesus continued, hallowed be your name or holy be your name. And that was something they were like, oh, okay. So he's still holy, but I can call him father. Mind still blown. And he says, your kingdom come. Now for those disciples that day, that was one they were looking for. They were hoping he was going to say that one. Because they were looking for a king. They believed that, that God would send a king who would free them from their shackles under Roman oppression from this, this invading, conquering country, of a nation of Rome that had taken over Israel. And they were like, yeah, bring the king and kick the Romans out. Yes, this is what they were looking for. But was it really? Those of you who know Jesus' story well know that the disciples didn't exactly get what they were asking for. Jesus had all kinds of things to say about the kingdom. I looked it up over the last couple of weeks. Every time Jesus mentions the kingdom, and there's a lot of them, he teaches them more and more about the kingdom, and it is not the kingdom they were expecting. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we still use this prayer, and there's more to the prayer, but I'm going to stop right there. We still use this prayer as a form or a guide. We call it the Lord's Prayer today, or if you're Catholic, you call it the Our Father for obvious reasons. And we still pray these words, thy kingdom come. What are we asking for? I thought I knew. When I started the idea of preaching this particular message a few weeks ago, because I was reading this book where these two people were arguing about what the kingdom was like, I'm like, oh, that would make a good sermon. I'm going to preach that. <laughs> I thought I knew what it meant to say, thy kingdom come. And I had all these ideas about all this great stuff I was going to preach. 
But then I was like, okay, wait a minute. What did Jesus actually say about the kingdom? It's like, okay, let's do that. I'm going to do a study of every time Jesus mentions the kingdom. And what does he say about the kingdom? And after doing all of that and reading through all of them, I got read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the times Jesus was talking. And he did not say what I thought he was going to say. <laughs> well, there are some folks, I suppose, who would just throw that away and preach whatever they wanted, but no, not me. Um, I'm going to try to preach what Jesus actually said about the kingdom. I read through all these references. There's a lot that he had to say, way more than I'm going to get to today. But as I looked through these, I was able to, from a kind of a big picture perspective, kind of lump them together into four primary themes. You could dig a little bit deeper. You can get a lot more out of it than the dozens of times Jesus talked about the kingdom. But there are kind of four big themes that emerge when Jesus is talking about the kingdom. Number one, the kingdom of God is good news. Jesus says this over and over and over again. And in Mark 1.15, we get the first time chronologically in Jesus' life that he mentions the kingdom. And he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Disciples are loving this. Repent. Nobody loves that word. And believe the good news. Good news, he says it is. This is a theme he's going to repeat often. In Luke 4, 43, Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. In Luke 8, 1, it tells us that Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. In Luke 16, 16, Jesus said, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and in a similar vein, and I told you that I did have to kind of lump some things together along themes, there's a couple of parables that Jesus tells that has sort of the same idea in Matthew 13. He talks about the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And a few verses later, he talks about it like it's a pearl of great price. It's valuable. Similar concept to it being good news but you could mine deeper. It's good news. When you pray, thy kingdom come, you're praying for a good thing to come. This is important for you to remember because by the time I get to point three, you might not be so sure anymore. It is good. It might not always seem that way. It might not always feel that way. It might even not even logically makes sense to you that way. But Jesus repeated it over and over. Trust me, it's good. It's good news. Interestingly enough, the ancient languages that were actually spoken at the time had a word for good news. It was the word gospel. That might come into play later too, but let's continue. Second point. Over and over again, Jesus refers to the kingdom like it's a seed that grows. Sometimes he calls it other things, but it's always this growing concept. In Mark 4, 26 to 27, this is what the kingdom of God is like. 
Jesus says. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or get ups, the seed sprouts and it grows, though he does not know how. Now that parable continues, and you can get more good stuff out of it, but I'm just going to focus on this concept. It's like a seed that grows. Once it's planted, even if you're not paying attention, it's going to keep growing. Interesting. Let's continue. Next time, uh, Mark 4, 30 to 32. Jesus says, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? It's like a mustard seed. And when planted, it grows. He talks about how the mustard seed, this tiny little thing, grows to become the biggest plant, biggest in the forest. Matthew 13, 24, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And that parable, as he continues, what do you suppose happens to the seed? Grows. In Matthew 13, 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed when it grows, and on goes the parable, in Matthew 13, 33, not quite a seed, but close to the same concept, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. When a woman took it and she mixed it into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. And those of you who have made bread by hand, what happens to that ball of dough when the yeast is working and spreading through it? Grows. Exactly. So by way of practical application on that particular point, I just want to throw something out before we move on to the next one. You pray sometimes, Lord, your kingdom come. You might think of it like a seed that grows when you're at home. Lord, thy kingdom come to my family. And then, whether sleeping or waking, watch it grow. You might pray at work. Maybe the, your workplace is not a faith-friendly place. Doesn't matter. Plant a seed. Watch it grow. Lord God, thy kingdom come to work. My workplace. Lord, thy kingdom come in my estranged relationship with this person. And watch it grow. Pray for thy kingdom to come and grow. It's kind of like stealth missionary work. A missionary of prayer. Lord, let your kingdom come there. Let it come to Grimes and let it grow. And so far, this all sounds like good stuff. But what are you actually praying for? This good thing that you want to grow. The next point is not going to sit well with us as Americans. Not just pop culture Americans, I mean Americans in general. And I couldn't get away from it because Jesus preached it over and over and over again. He keeps talking about the kingdom as the kingdom of God bringing judgment. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of judgment where we judge each other and we get all hypocritical and stuff. And No, 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 not that kind of judgment. Not person-to-person -person judgment. This king who comes, 
He isn't coming with all roses, petals, and sweetness and softness. This king who's coming, Jesus said in Matthew 18, 23, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who came and who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. The king who is coming is coming to judge. That does not make us very comfortable. In today's world, we like to think of a God who is all-loving, all-accepting, all-forgiving. We like the idea that everybody gets to heaven. And I wish I could stand up here this morning and tell you that's what Jesus said, but it is not. I'm going to continue. Matthew 19, 28. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, in other words, when Jesus is king, you who have followed me will also sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is concept of judging. Matthew 25, 31 to 33, and then later in 46, because this is a long story, I'm not going to read it all. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates sheep from goats, he'll put the sheep on his right side and the goats on his left. And then he explains the difference later on in the same parable about the sheep and the goats. The goats will go away to eternal punishment, but the sheep to eternal life. See, I could wish I could tell you there's no such thing as hell. That's not what Jesus preached. This guy who said, I know God. I know man, and I know what the relationship between the two is, said I know there will be a judgment day. He also said it was good news, which is curious. We'll get there. But this is a theme he preached over and over again. In Matthew 13, 47 to 48, he explains the kingdom of heaven's like a net, and it was let down in the lake, and it caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore, and then they sat down, and they collected the good fish in baskets and threw the bad away. Again, it's kind of that sheep and that goats concept. There's going to be a dividing, a separating. In Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Long parable, but when we get to the end of the parable, it continues. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie that guy without wedding clothes. Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a phrase that's commonly used to describe hell as we know it. For many are invited, but few are chosen. And yet Jesus said this was good news. Do you feel the odd contrast? 
I do. How can that be good news? That is a really big theological question, but we're going to get to a piece of it next because Jesus had more things to say about the kingdom, and this is the kicker. This is the important part. This is why it's good news and why we call it the gospel. The good news is the kingdom, this coming kingdom, it's a good thing with its judgment and its growing. It does not work the way the world does. See, when I tell you that the king is coming and he's going to judge people and the good fish are going over here and the bad fish are going over there, you've got all kinds of ideas in your head that are all wrong. Because the world judgment and God's judgment don't work the same way. Everything that you would judge your neighbor on, and we do sometimes judge our neighbors on, and every way that the world would tell you, that's a good person and that's a bad person, it's all wrong. The kingdom Jesus actually preached is open to the least of us. I'll explain more about that in just a second, but let me, let me, let me go to where Jesus said it. In John 18, 36, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. In this world, kings tend to be, what's the world word, nepotist? You know, the people who, you know, he's related to or he appreciates or who scratched his back, he scratches theirs or greased his palms, they get favors. That's how the world works. We all want it to work better than that, but that's how the world works. Jesus said, no, 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 my kingdom isn't like that. Let's go back to the very first time in Mark, the very first time when he talked about this coming kingdom. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. And these two remarkable words tucked in there. Repent and believe the good news. See, repent. It's a word that means to turn away from the way you usually do things. This coming kingdom is not going to work the way we usually do things. You know, I was raised, or I believed as I was being raised as a child in a different faith tradition, that the way to get on goods, God's good graces was by being a good boy. That's not how the kingdom works. That was actually something I had to repent from. The belief that I was, if I was just good enough I could get in God's good graces. But let me tell you, the opposite is similar. There are many of us today who believe that I have done so much wrong that I can't get in God's good graces. And that's also wrong. Jesus said there were two things about this good news that we need to know right off the bat, we needed to repent and believe. 
This was just the beginning of his message. You remember I said this is the first time? Jesus didn't exactly lay out all of his theology the first time he spoke. Remember, he's a guy who said the kingdom grows, but these are the seeds that he planted. Repent and believe. His kingdom would be founded on those things. Matthew 19. There's this really long parable, and I'm not going to read it all today. I don't have time. But beginning in verse 28, if you have a Bible with you, you want to open up to Matthew 19, go ahead. But in verse 28, I actually read this to you before. I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you have followed me, will sit on the twelve thrones, judging... And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And this is what the good news is. This is why the kingdom is so different. Many, Jesus said, many who are first in this world, the kings, the glorious, beautiful people who have it all together, that's not how it works in my kingdom, he said. And many whose lives have fallen apart, who have broken, who have made mistakes, who have not deserved it, they will be the first ones in, in my kingdom. That's why it's good news. That's why it's good news, because the kingdom of God is not merit-based. You don't get in and through that judgment based on how good you were, or how much good you've accomplished, or how much good you've accumulated. The kingdom of God is open to everyone, even the least of us, or the last of us, as Jesus said, the last, many who are last, will be first. Jesus went down and then told a parable. It's a big, long one in the beginning of Matthew 20. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like, then he tells this big, long story. In this story, there's a man who owns a, a field, a vineyard, I think it is, land, landowner. And he goes to town, he says, I want to hire a bunch of people to work for me, and I'll pay you a denarius, okay, that's like a coin, it's the amount of money, let's call it a day's wages. I'll pay you a day's wages to come and work in my vineyard. And they all come, and they, well, not all of them, a bunch of them come, and they start work early in the morning, I think it's a 12-hour work day, if you follow the whole text. But partway through the day, there's some people who weren't working yet in a town, and he goes and he gets those people, and he says, Come. Work in my field. So they come. Then he goes out, and, and later in the day, and he gets more. And at the 11th hour, it says, that's why I assume it's a 12-hour workday. At the 11th hour, he goes out, and he gets one more batch of people. And says, come work for me. And they do. And at the end of Matthew, this passage, round about verse 10 or so, that's not the end of the chapter, but it's the end of this parable. It's time for the king, as it said earlier, to settle accounts. Remember that? 
in verse 9, excuse me, the workers who were hired at the 11th hour, people only worked for an hour, they came and they each received a denarius. They, they got paid for the whole day. They got everything the landowner was giving. Spoiler alert, he pays everybody a denarius. Everyone receives the fullness of what the king is offering, even the ones who only came at the 11th hour. Now, just to complete the story, you have to, you have to believe that the people who came and worked the whole 12 hours were a little ticked. What did they know? What do you suppose they said? Thank you. It's not fair. And Jesus, who said the kingdom of heaven is like this, said, exactly. It's not fair. Because your whole system of what's fair is based on this world. My kingdom is not of this world. That's not how it works in my kingdom. And then... In verse 14, it says, I want to give the man who is hired the last the same as I gave you. I want to. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So, Jesus says, in other words, this is what I was talking about when I said, the last will be first and the first will be last. When Jesus told these disciples, pray, Father, their minds are blown. When Jesus said, thy kingdom come, they thought they knew what he was talking about, but they didn't. It took him a while, several chapters, as it turns out, to blow their mind again when he was talking about what the kingdom is all about. The kingdom has never been based on merit. That's why it's good news. You don't deserve it. You don't inherit it. You don't work for it. And contrary to popular opinion, you don't enter the kingdom of heaven based on how good you are or how bad you've been. Jesus showed us we all, and he said it from the very beginning, must repent and believe. But to all who do, even the people at the 11th hour, to all who do, whether rich or poor, highborn or lowly, whether you live in a mansion or grew up in a trailer park, whether you've kept your nose clean or you've driven your whole life into a ditch with your own bad choices, saints and sinners, the good news is the kingdom that's coming, the kingdom that is judging, is not going to let you into heaven or kick you out to hell based on what you've done, based on who you are, based on whether you repent and believe. Will you join this kingdom and believe in this son? If you will, then you're one of the sheep. You're one of the good fish. You're one that gets in. Two things are needed. Repent and believe. Your mistakes aren't demerits. Your bad choices don't disqualify you. Your record is not your final score. Two things are needed. Repent. Turn away from doing things the world's way. Come to the kingdom and believe. 
And I said earlier, this whole idea that the kingdom does not work the way you think it does, it brings judgment, but it's good news. This is all based on the words of a guy who is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He claims that he knows God. He knows who man is, and he knows the relationship between the two. Will you believe him? There's another preacher. I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, but I'm going to quote him anyways. There's another preacher by the name of Andy Stanley who talks about this question. He says, if there's a guy who comes and he says that I'm going to die and three days later I'm going to pick my life back up and I am going to come back to life and then he does it, I'm going to go with what he says. Liar, lunatic, or Lord? He's Lord. He really did it. He said, I'm God, and this is what the kingdom is like. Now the question I have for you is, will you repent? Will you believe? And if you have, will you pray, thy kingdom come and grow in your life? Let's pray now.